Hi, my name is Nick Baudois, and I'm on a quest, yes, a quest, to discover what motivates, drives, and invigorates practitioners in the field of data science. More importantly, I'd like to take the time to unpack the term data analytics and data science. We hear these terms used interchangeably in the market and seldom sit down to ask what is meant by this nascent field with historical roots in the fields of statistics, mathematics, programming, business, design thinking, data visualization, and various domain expertise. Throughout this podcast, we'll look at the core foundations, separate the important elements from the hype, including the must-haves and the like-to-haves of the data science toolkit. We will ask the movers and shakers of the data science world about their own career trajectory. How did they get to where they are now? How do they find answers and methods to problems that are new to them? And what makes them excited to continue in this field? My hope is that both the newly acquainted and mature data scientists can gain something from this podcast. By looking at diverse journeys to become a data scientist, we can uncover what is meant to have a foothold in the functional and technical world of data expertise. In essence, we will be discovering how to translate nerd. All right, hello. I am currently at RAND over next to the Pentagon, and we are interviewing Dr. Ben Miller. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So a quick introduction. Ben received his PhD about three years ago. Yeah. And has been at RAND for the past three years. Um, the way we ran into each other is mm -hmm. you were um, my professor's teaching assistant. Yes, to, back in San Diego. Back in San Diego when I was at a policy slash uh, lack of a better word, data skills school, and you were engrossing us with the knowledge of um, econometrics and Stata. Engrossing or subjecting, one of the two, but yes, right. you I survived, I recall. I, I remember your sessions were very, uh, were tended to be packed and popular. So I wanted to talk to you today because you bring a unique perspective to um, what we've been doing with Translating Nerd. We've mostly been talking with people with mathematic backgrounds. And your background is mainly from traditional economics. And so if you could give a brief introduction to what you study, what you do on a day-to-day, -day, um, floor is yours. Sure. So yeah, my background is economics all the way through to my undergrad in economics. I uh, went straight to grad school, did more economics there. Uh, along the way, I spent a couple summers at the Census Bureau, uh, helping them with the survey of income and program participation, doing some work on that. Um, then came out here to RAND. So in terms of what do we do day to day here, it's uh, a lot of data work that's probably similar in some ways to what the, the mathematicians are doing. It's uh, as a federally facing uh, research organization, uh, I, I should back up a little bit actually and, and maybe introduce RAND. I think that'll uh, help give some, some scope to what I do day to day. So I work at the RAND Corporation. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization. Uh, so that means we do research and analysis to help inform uh, policy issues that people care about. Right? So a lot of the work we do is for federal agencies. Uh, we also do work for philanthropic foundations. Uh, we'll do work on NSF and IH grants. Uh, we do work for cities and states sometimes as well. So a pretty diverse range of, pro of projects. So on day-to-day, -day, what do I do? I'll be working on um, projects, say, for maybe New York City or 
uh, the Department of Defense or the Air Force. And oftentimes they'll come to Rand and say, hey, can you help us figure out how to uh, perform this function more efficiently? Or we want to figure out how to better allocate scarce resources or things like that. Um, and so it's our job to go through and look at uh, what's going on now, how can we improve that process? Uh, and oftentimes there's a lot of data-driven uh, work within that. Mm -hmm. So what I'll be doing sort of day to day, it, it sort of varies through lots of steps in that process, right? So I could be spending most of my day writing a proposal for new work. So responding to a request for proposals to say, here's how we would approach solving this problem. Uh, I could be uh, working with a client that we, we've started working with to help them think through their particular research question to uh, find the right data to answer that question. And so there'll be programming involved, uh, data gathering involved, doing the actual analytics around that. And also usually there's some theory involved in that as well because we try and keep those, those tied together, right? What is the question we're trying to answer and what's driving it, uh, what's driving the process? And then, you know, a lot of writing, of course, is what we, our, our output is RAND reports. So everything we do, almost every project we do, uh, the final outcome is a RAND research report. And we saw a lot of those reports. You yes. gave, ben gave me a quick tour mm -hmm. of RAND's facility here, and my mm -hmm. mind is absolutely blown. Uh, not only do you have, mm -hmm. like most think tanks, all the publications mm -hmm. out front, but they had a really cool timeline of mm -hmm. when RAND was founded, what, 1946? Yep, 1946. Of, uh, on, on the top mm -hmm. of the timeline, it had uh, major studies that you had done, and on the bottom it had major uh, historical things that had happened and how it lined up, and I was just absolutely blown away by that. Um, also, what I find really interesting, and you were talking about in the tour, is this open office concept that you have. Yeah, so I can talk a little about that. This is a sort of a, a new design that we've brought to the, to the DC office here, and we really like it because it helps support and encourage the type of work we do. So, so what is it? So this is sort of an open office concept. A lot of your listeners may be familiar with that. Um, but what we've tried to do at RAND is we really want to encourage uh, communication between all of our different researchers and all these different backgrounds. RAND is an extremely interdisciplinary environment. Every project we do is team-based and it's always interdisciplinary. So I don't think I've ever had a project where I've worked on it by myself nor do I think I've ever had a project where I've only worked with economists. So not unlike grad school. Exactly. <laughs> so so it, it, to me, it, this place just feels like a ginormous study hall. Yeah, it, in a way it is. We're, we're, it's it's, a, it's a, a study hall in the sense that you can find a nice quiet place to work and get a lot of things done, but it's also really supportive of collaborative efforts, right? And so uh, it's very open. There's lots of uh, glass walls rather than than opaque walls. We want everybody to be able to uh, interact with each other because a lot of the good ideas we have here at RAND come from the fact that we've got you know, economists and political scientists and psychologists and engineers. And so we really want, as much as possible, those people bumping into each other and saying, hey, what are you working on? Oh, well, I'm working on you know, this thing. Oh, that sounds really familiar and similar to what I'm doing, but it's a totally different setting. And that's where we get a lot of our really cool ideas and we can sort of drag one idea across to somewhere else and get the sort of cross-fertilization that lets us really be innovative. I think the phrase you used is um, Iran supports people running into each other in the hallway. <laughs> yes, yes. Hopefully more figuratively than literally, <laughs> although um, it's, it's something that is part of the joy of being here, honestly. Mm. And that's probably a perfect mm -hmm. transition coming mm -hmm. from an 
right out of academia. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your academic experience? Sure. So I did uh, my undergrad at Purdue University uh, in economics, went from there to UC San Diego, where I got my PhD uh, in economics. Both wonderful schools, both really good experiences uh, that I think prepared me well for what I'm doing here. Uh, RAND is in some ways uh, often regarded as one of the more academic of think tank research organization uh, type groups. We always have uh, lots of seminars going on, um, both from internal presenters and academic speakers and practitioners. And so there's always really interesting debates going on. You can go to those and learn a whole bunch of, of really fun things. Um, it's, it's also, I think, a little different in academia in some important ways. Uh, I think the interdisciplinariness is probably the main one. In, in grad school, I was very focused on econ, and I lived within the economics department, which is what it should be, right? That's where I'm, you're going there to learn the technical skills, and you know, whether you're doing your graduate school in economics or math or, or whatever field, um, it's a time to learn the new technical skills that you're going to need in your job. Uh, once you're here, it's very important that you can apply those to a wide variety of situations, and not only that, but be able to communicate them with a lot of different people. So it doesn't really matter if I can communicate my research findings to another economist, um, because I may need to communicate them to uh, a psychologist or someone uh, with a completely different background. Right? And so it really helps to be constantly interacting with people from different backgrounds, because it forces you to still bring the sort of advanced techniques but be able to explain them in a way that's uh, not overly technical. So it could be an element of consulting in academia. Yeah, yeah. and I don't even think we, we view it as, as consulting per se, but as uh, how do we sort of support and interact with uh, the clients and help them get the things they need done. So I know in academic institutions, mm -hmm you create mentorships and bonds with professors that you work under. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how mentorship has been important post-academia? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So post-academia, I'd say both in academia and post-academia, it's really important to have people that you can turn to to bounce ideas, get feedback from in a way that's sort of safe and comfortable, right? And so. I've found it's, it's nice to have both someone who's just sort of a few steps ahead of you, who's sort of been there recently uh, and can help sort of commiserate and say, you know, here's the best way to chart through this particular uh, issue. And it's also good to have someone who's, who's more senior, has seen a lot of things and can help you sort of take that 30,000 foot view and remember that the problem that you're facing this week is in the big scheme of things a small piece and remember the larger picture. Uh, and so that's good too. It's also, I think, very helpful uh, once one gets out of academia to remember to reverse the roles and take some time uh, to mentor others who are sort of following along similar paths. And so I've gotten a few opportunities to uh, mentor rising undergraduate students and things like that. And that's been a really enjoyable process. I found it's helpful, especially when starting at a new firm, is having what some people refer to as an onboarding advisor. You know, mm -hmm. like you just said, mm -hmm. that person one or two steps in front of you, who you feel okay mm -hmm. sending an email saying, you know, mm -hmm. how do I get my badge to work, mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like that. Exactly. But um, so it sounds like you're saying different stages of mentorship. Yeah, yeah, and I'd say the way it's structured here is very is very open. Uh, we have when you first arrive, you have time to basically go around and meet as many people as possible. Where because we're a very 
a collaborative open environment, you're not assigned to a particular team. So when we have a new project come in, we don't say, hey, Nick, this is the project you're going to be working on next week. It's, it's much more um, finding the right team of people with, uh, who both have the skills and are eager and want to work on the project. And so some PI will bring in a project and find the teams that they'll say, hey, Nick, here's the project we're doing. Are you available to work on this? Is this something that's interesting to you? And you'll say, yeah, that sounds great. Sign me up. And then we'll, we'll run ahead from there. Would you say that RAND gives you the opportunity to chart your own path? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, extremely so, right? In the sense that you have to be self-driven in a way. If you're, if you're not going to chart your own path, you aren't, you're not going to, going to succeed at RAND. Mm -hmm. Because no one's going to come to you and say, here's what you're doing next. So in that sense, it's very freeing because... In one way, you're, you're free to work on whatever you want, essentially, as long as you're finding things to work on. Um, on the other hand, it can be intimidating if someone is uncomfortable and needs a little, a little guidance in that sense. And so I think the result becomes a community where um, everyone is very open and very uh, sharing with uh, what opportunities are available and always sort of looking to work together. And that makes everybody very collegial because you never know who you're going to be working with next. So you always want to be nice to everybody, right. which is a very nice environment. So let's get to the topic of data science. Sure. Now there's a whole ton, there's a ton of different understandings of mm -hmm. how do we define data science. Maybe data scientists mm -hmm. uh, have different uh, categories. In your field, mm -hmm. you know, in your experience at RAND, yeah. what does a data scientist look like? Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of different flavors of data scientists. So, so I can speak first to my role as an economist, right? So for me, it's about being able to take a research question, right? An agency has come to us and said, hey, we want to figure out how to do this process more efficiently, or is it better for us to perform this ourselves or get somebody else to do it? How do we sort this out? And so the first step is, for me, is figuring out what the research question is and then finding the right data, finding the right analysis process to do that. And so I'd say my role as a data scientist is saying, given the research question, what is the best available data, the most appropriate technique, uh, and the theory that supports that to sort of describe the right answer to this question. Mm. And so bringing those pieces together and doing the right analysis is sort of the part I do, and it's very cause and effect driven. And so. Um, like the, the course you took in San Diego with me, it's all about identifying cause and effect mechanisms. It's the applied econometric toolkit of can referring we take, to causal inference. Yes, exactly. It's all causal inference questions. Can we say something from looking at the data about whether A is causing B? And then if so, what are the policy implications of that? That said, there's a whole bunch of other flavors of data science, right? That's very cause and effect driven. There's also a bunch of folks here at RAND who are, are sort of more on the data communication side of things. So there's a whole another flavor of data science, which is given I have this story about A causing B in the data, how do I communicate that clearly? And there's, there's a whole ream of programs and methods and techniques that one can use to sort of look at that information from different angles, and there's a whole field of folks who do that. Would that be similar to say like data visualization engineering yeah. and okay. yeah. yeah, exactly. So we kind of talked about what your understanding of a data scientist is. Um, what 
what toolkit would you say that you bring to the table? What do you? What's the tools that you you see a problem and you're like, oh, I know how to do it in this program. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's there's a couple things. There's the programs, which is just like, what statistical program are you going to are you using? Stata, SAS, R, Python, uh, whatever. And then separate from that, there's the uh, statistical techniques. Right? Is this in my case, it's the Applied econometric causal inference toolkit. So, is this does this research question look like uh, differences and differences approach is the appropriate mm -hmm. way, or a regression discontinuity, or an instrumental variable, or maybe I need some sort of nonlinear uh, Tobit, you know, whatever the right methodology is for the question at hand. And so, part of what I do is say look at the research question and identify what's the appropriate approach for answering this. What sort of flavor of problem do we have here and what's the best method to answer that that just talking about that brought flashbacks from uh <laughs> was it woldridge textbooks I'm, I'm sorry i hope it wasn't too much but the woldridge textbooks are actually quite nice those are the, some of my favorites the woldridge textbook the introduction to mm -hmm. econometrics is still on my shelf it mm -hmm. is absolutely battered there are highlightings <laughs> everywhere but um, I remember having a very, very hate-hate-love relationship with that book. Yeah. I, I have one on my shelf as well. So I, <laughs> Are we I talking about the same red, yep, red yep. one? The one that you yep. taught us from. Yeah, yeah. Edition yep. 4E or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking with somebody who's working on their PhD at um, UC San Diego right now, mm -hmm. and he sent me a picture of all the different Wolders textbooks that he's gotten into. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I could barely make it past the introductory one. I can't imagine... <laughs> Imagine what's next, but he's he is far down the causal inference mm -hmm. rabbit hole right now. So excellent, that, that makes sense. Um, what does your average day at Rand look like? Yeah, so it really varies a lot. Uh, we'll have a bunch of different projects going on at any one time. So I could be doing anything from uh, working on writing a proposal or expression of interest for some new opportunity to basically say, you know, an agency has come put out a request for proposal saying we need somebody to help us answer this question. And so we'd be writing up a short proposal saying, here's how we'd answered at RAND. Here's the team we'd have to do it. Uh, and this is how we'd set everything up. So I might be writing that. Uh, for the, the proposals we already have up and running, I could be actually doing the analysis. So taking the data set, uh, you know, writing code or advising others on, on the code they're writing, um, running the actual analysis, designing the, the research approach. Do we want to do the regression discontinuity? Do we want to do the, the differences and differences approach? Uh, and figuring out, usually in a team setting, what's the what's the right way to proceed? What are the next steps we need to do to get get everything done? And so, because everything's team based here, um, nothing is done. Sort of, this isn't something I, I do in isolation. Sort of sitting at my desk here, typing on my my keyboard all day, and never seeing the the, the sun or another human face. Right? So maybe very different from your academic days. Yes. Yeah. And so it's it's a shift. In that, I think that's not to diminish the academic days because you have to sort of go through that trial by fire to, to get the techniques under your fingernails. Um, but once you have that, it's the collaboration is really important because uh, the quality of the work that you can do by yourself versus the quality of the work that you can do when you get to interact with other people that have complementary skill sets is really, really uh, a big difference. And it's really wonderful to be able to say, hey, I'm, I'm looking at this data set on uh, health records or uh, wage inequality or um, sorties flown or, or whatever. 
And I can look at what the numbers are, but I may not be a subject matter expert in that particular topic. So I can walk three doors down the hall and knock on Shelly's door and say, hey, I've got this data, but there's this really weird thing in it where, you know, everybody was reporting the value of seven. What's going on? And she'll go, oh, that's because, you know, whatever. And you need, you need to have that interaction to be able to understand everything a lot more clearly. And it results in a much better analysis overall because you, you see the whole picture. And at RAND, having that collaborative environment, I'm sure, helps facilitate that, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So a project may include people who are, are more quantitatively focused along with people who are more qualitatively focused. So it's very common to have a project that includes both the sort of data science element of I'm going to pull the best available data sets and find what the sort of causal inference story here is, but at the same time uh, also have going a series of interviews with uh, subject matter experts and people who are sort of living it day to day to see, ask them what they're seeing and how they feel about the whole process. And so then we tie those two pieces together and you, the story that marries out of that is something that feels a lot more complete. So you talked about causal inference and explaining it. I, I remember from one of your TA sessions, I think it was either uh, first time differencing data or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, showing um you know ice cream sales and isis attacks or you know something (laughs) like that um and which you know a lot of people Mm -hmm. misconstrue a lot of Mm -hmm. these basic questions of causation how do you feel that your teaching experience because you spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. teaching undergrads teaching Mm -hmm. grad school students Mm -hmm. do you feel that helps you at all in your career yeah absolutely so for for several reasons so first off Teaching keeps you sharp on the methodological skills. The best way to... The fundamentals. Exactly. The best way to keep the fundamentals right. And not only that, but to stay on top of the latest changes because there's always um, new updates and new methods and new techniques coming out. And the, the, the theoretical econometricians of the world are always finding more things to do, right? And so it's good to stay... Uh, in touch with that and know what the what the latest is. Otherwise, you become outdated very quickly. Well, I'm sure also it helps you know with building those fundamentals because if mm-hmm. someone asks you know what are the mm-hmm. five assumptions of Gauss Markov or you know what makes mm-hmm. OLS blue, you'd be like, oh yeah, I, I taught that to a bunch of newbies the other day. Exactly, exactly. And so it's good for for that purpose. It's also good for encouraging and and I should say practicing your ability to communicate the ideas, right? Because it's it's one thing to teach yourself how a new method works, and it's another thing to teach somebody else that method, especially if the group you're teaching comes from a really diverse array of backgrounds. Um, so I should say, I actually just finished teaching a course uh, this fall for RAND's grad school. RAND has, uh, we have the Party RAND grad school. Uh, it's a PhD policy analysis program. I think it's the largest one in the country. Actually, we have an absolutely wonderful student base for that. They come from all over the country and all over the world and a really diverse array of backgrounds and skills. And so it makes the classroom much like you know, the RAND projects where you have a diverse array of backgrounds. The, the classroom and, and the students have a really diverse array of backgrounds. And it's great we also have them work on all of their projects with us. Uh, so they're both taking classes and uh, working with us on several projects and I've enjoyed working with all of them. The process of Teaching that diverse group is really helpful for my day-to-day work because it encourages you to practice communicating to uh, diverse 
uh, background. So someone may have a, a quantitative background. We have somebody who's already got a master's degree in, econ- in economics. And so I can derive a formula on the exactly. board and they're going to follow. Exactly. I can, I can use more econometrics jargon. But we also may have somebody who has a background in psychology and was doing, I don't know, clinical social work. Uh, for several years or something before they came to RAM. So maybe they took an introductory statistics. Maybe they can understand the difference between, um, you know, various tests of significance, but having maybe they haven't applied it. Or... Exactly. And you're going to have all of these students in the same class. And so you have to be able to communicate complicated ideas, but in a way that everybody understands. So teach the lowest common denominator without... Yeah, but I, I don't even think of it as the lowest common denominator because they're all very, very bright. I've been impressed yeah. with all the students. But it's everybody comes from a different background with different skills. And so oftentimes I'm learning new things from them because they know all sorts of stuff that I have. I know nothing yeah. about clinical yeah. psychology, right? Um, so it can be a really a two-way street in terms of a learning experience. But it's it's good to practice communicating in a way that you're explaining concepts clearly to everyone because it's the same thing we do for sponsors, right? When you have uh, a project that you're doing for your federally facing, for your for your client, for you know uh, uh, any given state or city or uh, federal agency, the person you're uh, presenting to, I've had projects where the the sponsor we're interacting with often every week, uh, and they may be a PhD economist themselves. And they really want to go into the weeds with us and walk through every detail. And we've done that, and that's great. I really enjoyed those. Uh, we also may have a project where the sponsor is a very detailed subject matter expert on the topic, but their background is in cost analysis, say, and not uh, econometrics. And so I, I can't use the econometric lingo that I used on the other project, uh, but, I, but they're still very smart, and they know all sorts of things that I don't. And so I have to be able to say, here's what we're doing, here's how it's of value to you uh, in a way that's useful for them. And teaching is in many ways the same process. Right. right. All right, so let's take the academic study back a little further. Say, for example, you're in the Dr. Ben Miller world and you can go back to when you're 18 years old. Mm-hmm. What would an undergraduate major look like? Say it's Ben Miller's major in data science. Um, we're kind of hitting two questions in yeah. one. Is the, the next question was going to be, what do you consider the, the data science toolkit? Um, but let's go back and say if you needed to create it, you have four years of study as an undergrad, what do you put in there? And there's no prerequisites. There's no general ed requirements. Um, what do you throw in those four years? Yeah. Okay, so math and statistics, first off, are critical. There's a, that's the foundation for all this. It doesn't matter if you're, you're talking to the economist or the mathematician or the statistician. Having some uh, fundamental understanding of the underlying statistics is going to be really important. Um, that said, uh, some additional uh, courses, well, in addition to that, probably at this point, computer science classes, get, getting the programming skills down. Uh, also something I don't think I probably did enough of undergrad and I wish I had gone back and done more of that. Um, some that are probably less obvious perhaps is some of the critical thinking classes, right? It's not just about the statistic, having the statistical knowledge, but being able to apply it in a logical way because it's, it's sort of all the same thought process. So taking um, like a logics class in like a philosophy department, mm. I think would be wonderful. Uh, in the math department, a real analysis class. Um, 
and complex analysis if they have it, um, I think is something that's super helpful just for getting the uh, thought process down. Uh, another one that I think would be super valuable, and I don't know if I've quite seen a class like this, is a communications class, but a communications class that's focused, focused on communicating statistical information. How do you communicate the results of your t-test clearly? How do you show in a meaningful way uh, the histogram of the data that you're talking about? There's, there's some really nice papers out there on terrible faux pas in you know, designing graphs and clear ways to present information and unclear ways to present information. And I think that's something that getting that under your belt is a be a super valuable tool as well. Right, and I, you know you see a lot of beautiful, beautiful studies that have great visualizations, mm -hmm. but they don't talk about how they sampled their data mm -hmm. or kind of how they went about getting their data. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like something like even yes. sampling methodologies would be in there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's there's I've I've heard suggestions that we we do a great job in the academic literature of uh, citing studies that you know, inspired or, or gave supporting information to the, the research process, right? We're not as good about doing the same thing for data, and that's something that we, we really should be, and there's, there's progress being made on that, but you could imagine a summer process where you say, you know, I'm citing this data source, and that came from you know, this satellite feed and it was compiled by this research group and sort of tracing back the data the same way. Uh, there's a lot of concern about, say, for example, value of information style studies of how do we track the value of the data itself and so being able to follow it. Kind of like a lit review for exactly. the information yeah, itself. Yeah, a lit review for the information itself, exactly. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, one question that I, I'm really curious, and I, I know I sent this question specifically mm -hmm. to you beforehand, mm -hmm. is that you talk about communicating um, complex things, mm -hmm. complex, like how do you communicate a t-test to yeah. somebody from a non-quant background. Yeah. Um, explain something to us that is complicated mm -hmm. in layman's terms. Sure, sure. So I was trying to think about what the, the right example for this was, and I wanted to pick something that uh, we run into all the time. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about a, sen a sensor data problem. That's super common. So what is sensor data? Sensor data is data where you may not observe the, the true value for something. So a great example is income data, right? So if I have a bunch of data on people's income, it might be what we call top-coded in that anybody whose income is above, say, $250,000 is just sort of capped at two hundred fifty. Their real income might be $375,000. But because of personal identification issues, income often gets sort of top good. And so you'll have this sort of weird tail distribution where the tail is basically cut off and everything's shoved up. And so what we see in the data is you see your, all your various incomes, and then a bunch of people are just listed at 250, 250, 250. Because I'm sure if you put someone with $9 billion, you could you know exactly who, it is. who that actually is. Exactly. Right. And so because of that, what happens is suppose I want to look at uh, classic economics question, relation between education and income. And so I can imagine a graph where I have my income on my y-axis, my education level on my x-axis, and if I observed everybody's education level and everybody's income as it truly is, 
I can just sort of draw a line through that that says here's sort of the best fit line. And ignoring all the other issues with that, uh, suppose that's my, my causal relation, right? The problem as soon as I get this, this censoring is that a bunch of those points where I observe people's incomes, uh, I don't actually get their, their true income. It's sort of pushed down, right? I have a few people that are outliers that are, you know, the, the 9 billion mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Uh, they're too high. I don't observe them. Instead, I have like this cap, right? And so what happens if I draw my new line through this sort of limited data is it's, it's tilted a little bit. My line's wrong, right? And so I have this bias from the top coding. And so there are techniques and methods out there to deal with that, right? A really common mistake that people tend to make is they say, oh, well, I know I'm wrong. I understand that I've got this, this censoring issue, um, but I really care about the low-income folks anyways because of the study I'm doing that's my topic. And so why don't I just throw out everybody that's 250 or higher, and then I'll be accurate within this, this subsample. Uh, and the problem is that actually doesn't work. You're still biased. Uh, the math behind it's a little complicated, but the short intuition of it is essentially you've thrown out data non-randomly, right? If I had a bunch of data on people's education level and incomes, and I took 10 totally random observations and threw them out, it wouldn't matter. If I instead said I'm looking at this correlation between income and education, I'm going to look at and pick a couple people based on their income and take them out, that changed things, right? And so it's essentially what you're doing, uh, and so it's good to be cautious for that. We have models to deal with that sort of selection bias. There's, there's Tobit models, there's Heckman corrections, uh, and all those sorts of things, but finding the right one is important because you can't just use standard OLS to, to fit through that line because you're going to have some bias issues. Very well put. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we deal with that in the data preparation phase is, mm -hmm. you know, is there any pattern to the missing values? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the times we see missing values go, okay, well, in, mm -hmm. you know, NA is going to equal zero. Yeah. Um, which, if there's a relationship between those NAs, then mm -hmm. you yeah. kind of shot yourself in the yeah. foot. Yeah, it's classic. Missing is not zero is a, uh, another standard issue. And so the, the question is, really, are they missing at random, or does the missing matter? And there's, there's a whole bunch of really fun work out there uh, looking at the fact that, that missing values are themselves an observation of sorts, right? A missing value means something, mm -hmm. right? If we're at the Census Bureau and we're thinking about it in terms of someone doesn't report their income, that means something. Who is the type of person who doesn't report this, this information? Or if you're getting all sevens, you have mm -hmm. your subject matter expert that you refer exactly. to that you can go and ask on that. Exactly, right? And they can say, oh, it's structured in such a way that they're required to plug in seven. It's totally useless information or... Um, Yes, some of them are seven, but you'll see others are missing. And so what that means is anybody who would be below a seven just avoids reporting entirely or something like this, right? And so you can get that extra information that way. Mm -hmm. um, last question. What types of technologies do you have your eyes on for the next five years? Oh, gosh. So in terms of the statistical uh, packages and analysis programs. So we, we were talking earlier about how R is sort of the, the new kid on the block that's been growing very rapidly. So as an economist, I tend to do a lot of my work in Stata. Um, R has been growing very rapidly and really encouraging uh, the new data scientists out there to make sure they've, they've got that one under their belts. Um, there's a lot of really great work going on in the data visualization world as well. And if you're doing data science, you should really also understand the data visualization side of things. There's some great uh, new programs involved in that. Um, 
So Tableau, for example, is very popular here. But generally finding ways to present the information very clearly because it's not enough to just do the analysis and then stop. Right? Because at some point you have to share the results with someone or it didn't mean anything. Right. And the way you share the results matters because that's all people see. Right? So they didn't see the 20 days you spent you know, slaving over your program to get it exactly right. They just see what you tell them at the end. And so putting time into making sure you're presenting it in a way that's clear and correctly illustrates what you're trying to communicate is super important. Very well put. Um, so the other question I had for you, which we can put in the show notes afterwards, mm -hmm. is the pieces you referred to for missing information. Um, mm -hmm. I'll reach out to you afterwards and sure. plug those. If someone wants to get a hold of you, how can they do that? Oh, best way is probably to, to email me. There's, I should have a, a link on my website online. We'll put a, me up. We'll, we'll put a link that will give you a little, um, a little plug there. Perfect. Ben, thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Nick.